Today, we are talking to a placement veteran about the role of placement in the child welfare process. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack, and today we have a very special guest, Elise, who has, until very recently, rocked child welfare as a placement supervisor. Thank you for coming, Elise. Thank you for having me. So, Elise, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? It used to be a venti Starbucks double shot, but they've changed it now to the brown sugar oat milk shake and espresso, which took out like two espresso shots. Oh my goodness. Well, can you get that and then add the espresso and it's the same thing? You can. So I just switched up my whole order. Okay. I just changed it up. So So what's your new order? I'm drinking chai tea lattes, adding extra espresso to it. You need to make it a dirty. We like that too. Have you topped it though with cold foam? No. No. Yeah, the vanilla cold foam on top. Now this is like an $8 drink, so I only waited till I have rewards to buy that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like we need a field trip this week. Okay. So uh, you get an ice or hot? Iced. Always iced. I'm from Florida. Okay. I don't Same need hot coffee. I burn my mouth every time I drink hot. Absolutely. Uh, except for if it's really cold out and then sometimes the chai latte. So you get an iced chai latte with extra two extra shots of espresso mm-hmm. and cold foam on the top. Yes. I like it. We're going to try that. Can we call it the Elise? Yeah. All right. Done. We have enough bosses. We do what we want. <laughs> Elise, can you tell me what uh, your position was up until recently and what that entails? So I was the... Daytime placement supervisor. I was co-supervising when I left. Prior to that, I had just been singly supervising the day shift. I was over, which always sounds weird to me, um, three to four placement coordinators. Did a little bit of everything. Someone asked me what my job is. I would say I really don't know. I just answer the emails continuously and (laughs) hopefully have the answers to that. So we have to ensure um, that every kid has a bed coming Mm -hmm. into care. Uh, so just kind of coordinating, assisting my placement coordinators where they needed, you know, they needed help. If it was to write a waiver because they didn't have time, I'd write a waiver. Just for people who don't know, what is a waiver? So a waiver is <laughs> what we all live by Florida. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know what home that's not on a waiver. So a waiver is when a licensed home is over capacity um, of some type. So it's either We have three types of waivers um, when it comes to licensed homes. It's either uh, more than five children in the home, um, over licensed capacity, so they could only be licensed for two kids and we're putting a third child in, 
or the big one, which is the hardest one to get ever, ever, ever. <laughs> uh, we call it a three under two, but it's technically I think a, a two over two or two under two. two, under two yeah. yeah, we always call it a three under two uh, in the placement department. Think about carrying like car seats yeah. and how do you carry three car seats? And when you put it that way, like if you have to get two kids out uh-huh. that are in car seats. I mean, we usually end up just wearing multiple kids. <laughs> right, right. So that was when someone had to kind of explain it to me and made a lot more sense. Yeah. Where are you putting this other car seat? You can't be putting a car seat on the ground. I mean, I'd always say I might give them all the babies if they want them, but mm-hmm. I understand the reasons behind it now. So, yeah, that makes sense. At one point in time, I was completing all the staffings. As of about a year ago, we got a staffing coordinator. So I had someone else kind of doing that. But I just filled in here or there. If there was something open that wasn't done, that's what I was doing. So can you tell me what your first experience with foster care was? There was one foster home that like I knew of and they took sibling sets where I'm from. Now, even to this day, listening to people, I know people that I went to high school with, they're fostering now. That was the only one I knew. There was, it was one home. They had siblings and those kids were pretty open and honest about it, which sounds so different to now. People don't want them to know that they're in foster care, but. Um, what drove your decision to go into social work? That wasn't, that wasn't always calling. I knew I was going to do something with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was going to be a teacher forever. That never happened. I didn't go into that. I kind of went back and forth in college. It took the very long way mm-hmm. around through my AA, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I finally decided on sociology, which is not exactly the route you go for child welfare, <laughs> um, but it always sounded interesting to me. So I did that. When I finished up my degree, I started volunteering for Guardian Ad Litem, mm-hmm. knowing that I wanted to work with kids. I wanted, you know, again, they they don't have a voice sometimes. And it, it, they didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. They didn't ask to be born. They didn't right. ask for that kind of life. So I I came over here. I'm from the, the East Coast of Florida. And I had worked for DCF. Nothing interesting. I did welfare benefits. I met the above director at uh, something we had done at DCF. We had had people come in. And at that point, I knew I wanted to work for my company. Mm-hmm. I met him. He's just extremely charismatic. Um, he's passionate about what he does. And I was like, I need to I need to work for him. <laughs> Not my company. I need to work for him. Uh-huh. He, he seems like a great leader. So that's what drove me to where I'm at now. Can you tell me about the formal education that you completed? I have my bachelor's in sociology. Okay. Um, which is not, you can't do much with that unless you want to continue to learn on, get your master's, get your doctorate. That's really the point of it. Um, it's not exactly a stepping point to where I'm supposed to be, but got me where I am. It's okay. People do all kinds of different things with their <laughs> degrees, you know? Um, do you feel like that prepared you for this job? I don't know exactly. I mean, it, t- it taught me like, ugh. they're really interesting courses in it. Um, you know, it's about the social interactions of people. When a child comes into care from CPI, they do something called an intake, right? Yes. And that's when it comes to you. Can you kind of walk me through the steps of where it goes once you receive that intake? The first thing after the intake comes through, and the intake is supposed to be the basic information, um, parents' names, um, you know, where the child was living, if they have siblings, if the siblings are coming in. Um, it gives us the basics of, you know, medical behaviors, personality traits. So then our next step is to um, kind of do our research. So we need to know things that CPI may have not caught. And again, sometimes CPI has only met these kids for a couple hours. You know, this is something that treasure that came right off. You know, sometimes they do follow the cases, so they'll have a little more information. 
but not, not all the time. So we start doing our research and we have a system which is, it's called FISVIN and it's yeah. not the same everywhere. Um, that's the Florida network. So yeah. uh, we go through that. Um, we that's search the master database. Uh, it, it is, it is, it, it holds all, all in, <laughs> all information, all the knowledge. So we check that for all previous cases, intakes to pull any information we can. I mean, sometimes you find you know, things that even CPI didn't know. Oh, there's previous siblings. You know, those siblings are in care. Those siblings are here. Does that sometimes give you guys information about like behaviors and yep. um, medical needs that maybe CPI didn't catch? Because one thing that we've talked about before um, is that one of the struggles uh, with foster homes is you'll get a placement call and it'll say one thing and then you get the kid and it's something else. But one of the things that we've talked about with that is, you know, how do you get that information? You would get that information maybe from the parents. Sometimes the parents are not conscious. Sometimes the parents are not present. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the parents are unwilling to provide that information because they think that like, if I give that information, they're going to take my kid. You know, you have this time with this child. And if the parent isn't providing that inf or isn't able to provide that information and it's not something you can visibly see, then you can't really like cast blame on placement or CPI for not providing you that information. Because, mm -hmm. you know, how, how, how would that information be obtained if it wasn't provided or visible? Right. But so one of the ways that you guys sometimes find that information, I guess, is doing research in FISFIN before moving to the next step. Yeah. I mean, it. you find a lot of good things. Again, it's sometimes those get called in on those intakes and it's like you said, previous medical, Oh, you know, the child has this, this heart defect or they have this. And it's like, so then we can ask CPI, Hey, can you go back to mom? Can you go back to caregiver? And can you ask these questions? Can you look for this medication? Can you ask the child if they're old enough? What does this look like for you now? Is this also where you find out oh, there's a sibling in care, let me place with them, or this child was in care before and placed at this home, let me see if that child can go there. Is that where that's done? You can look in there. Um, that's not my, my exact favorite. The old We had an old system. We've moved from that old other old system. So that's the one that I like because it gives that information. You're not, you don't have to go searching for it. It's like right there yeah. popping up. If you type in their name, it'll pop right up. But yeah, it's, I mean, that that's the holder of all. Okay, so you you do the research in FISFIN. What's the next step you take? I would be looking for placement availability. Um, so that's depending on age and gender, um, sibling sets, not sibling sets, kind of what uh, kids' needs are. So depending on that, that's kind of where you go. It, it can, you know, maybe there's some medical issues. So if there's medical issues, we need to, send the consents um, for medical evaluation. Um, if there are therapeutic needs, we're going to reach out to our therapeutic team. Right, you know, every once in a while we get that straight, normal kid. We've got no issues. We've got nothing going on. Um, so then we'll start calling down the line of our foster parents that they fit. And what, what makes you make the decision of where to go on that list? But every Friday we do a, um, a meeting with our licensing team and our contracted licensing teams. And we ask for available beds. So they'll give us a list of what the available beds are um, and what the profile for that home is. So you start with that list. Best case scenario would be if a kid's coming out of one county, we place in that county. Right. That's always where you want to go. Um, you know, it makes easier, it easier, easier for transportation. Transportation, case court. management visits. Yep. That's where we would start. And then after that, depending on how many calls we've made, you start moving around. You start calling your uh, go-to foster parents, those ones who they will take kids a little out of profile. Um, you know, if they have 
only one bed available, but they'll take two kids because they can make the rooms. It's a game. It's it's a puzzle piece game. I, I like puzzles, so it's, you know, it's making the pieces connect. When I get a call from placement, sometimes I hear the kid in the background. I remember one kid in particular, placement was talking to me, asking me to take him. I could hear him in the background telling her what to say. So, oh and gosh. like on one hand, I kind of think that's kind of cute that like they're in there hanging out with you, but that's also got to be very, that's got to be a lot of anxiety to basically be trying to sell this kid to a family with the kids sitting right there. And then they're hearing the rejections as you are. So prior to COVID, uh, we were in office all the time and we loved it. We loved having kids in. Now, especially when they brought the babies in and CPI was walking down the hallway, please bring this baby into our office. <laughs> we liked all the snuggles, but we always welcomed kids in, case management with kids, CPI with kids. I mean, getting to know your kids was really important to us. Our teens, they were always welcome in. They'd come in, they'd do homework. They'd listen to music. Um, you know, when it comes down to time of confident confidentiality, we ask them to leave. We take them back. We walk them back to case management. Um, so generally they're not normally there when you're making calls. Is that, yeah. I mean, it just, it, depending on what kind of information we're right. sending out, you know, for, we got it, we have our regulars. Um, so when you're talking to group homes or foster parents, they know the name, they know the behaviors. So you're not really giving out information. So we just try to make sure that we're not saying name slash behavior slash medical in front of children, you know, because you have regulars. <sighs> We have regulars, unfortunately, mostly with our teen population. Those are the ones, though, I would say, us as a placement department, have so much more of a bond with because yeah. they're in your office. You know their names. You know their story from start to finish. That's that's what I loved about the job. I could, not that they were regulars. I didn't like that part of the job. Yeah. You know, I had learned it from my director that these are all of our children. We get very... That explains a lot about the placement. I've got to tell you, every time I go to the office... Placement is my favorite place to go. I just feel like some of my favorite people, that's where they are. I don't know. I just feel like that's where magic happens. I mean, that's the goal. It's a sad place, too, you know, obviously because of what's going on. But it's also like the connections that are being made, like kids being able to find places where they can go while their families heal. This is the place where it's like actively frontline happening. Yeah. I mean, it's the magic. I like the magic. I like the magic. I feel like it's the magic. it's, It's nice. I mean, even, you know. When you find that right placement, especially for a teen, a teen who's been bouncing around, a teen that can't find stability and you find a home that's willing to, you know, give it that extra shot and it works and they'll either they're reunified from there or, you know, they age out in this home. But that is a support that they'll have Mm -hmm. once they're 18, which is for most kids that age out of care, there isn't a support there. So being able to make those connections for those kids is that's the magic that's the feeling that's why that's why you stay for so long because (laughs) you come back and you're like oh i'm the success okay i can do this a couple more months (laughs) you've made my day i've got this now so at least one of my adopted children was placed by elise that's why she's one of the special people in placement for me and i always say like you know basically her and you know her friend that we were talking about previously like they could call me and ask me anything and i would probably take any like oh just out of jdc oh weapon charge cool set them out of like i will do anything like i just but also because um both of them i trust like i i trust that they know my home they know me they know our strengths they know you know what our family is capable of so you know for me it's like wow you care more about making sure that these kids are in the right place than just about you know checking off boxes Mm -hmm. so 
I don't know. I love placement. They're my. Aww. I yeah. love placement my, too. After you want to come hang out at placement with me sometime? Let's take, a, let's take a road trip. We're always welcoming people. We always say if someone wants to come sit in, see what this mess is like every day, you are welcome to see it. Um, so approximately in a given day, how, about how many placements does the department handle? That has fluctuated so much since I started. Right. Um, when I started, I would say including. Um, you know, repeat kids, not brand new placements. We would probably, I would say anywhere from 10 to 15 would be normal. Um, so in a given day, you would have 10 to 15 placements that you've got to figure out. And that is new plus existing placements that need a new placement. Correct. Okay. So 10 to 15. And um, in general, when you start that day and you know that you may have 10 to 15, maybe less, maybe more. Um, how many beds do you have open on a given day? Depending on what we're looking at. I mean, again, if you have teens, well, group homes normally fluctuate with the open beds. So that that kind of changes. Um, right. We find ourselves in the ebb and flow, though. Uh, sometimes when we're placing, it's all teen, teen girls on the board. And you're like, I have one teen girl bed open in a group home. Why do I have 15 on this board? The needs never really match. Never, the, uh, never, never, never. And it's always, it always is some type of set, regardless if it's gender, regardless if it's amount of kids, it'll be like sibling sets, but they're only coming in in sibling sets of four. Right. Why is four the magic number right now? I was seeing that recently, I, actually. I had a sibling group of three going home and there were like five sibling groups of three on the board yep. that day, you know, and that's where I got my sibling group of three that came in. You'll say to yourself there, I don't feel like there's any beds. I mean, we've gotten, got down to, where our availability list in you know one county versus the other is down to like three or four open beds in that county. Oh my goodness! And you're going, I don't know where this X amount of children are going to go, but um, we're very lucky. You're creative. We're creative, but I give a lot of credit to our foster homes. What um, we we know how to make space. <laughs> we know how to put together a bed, lickety split. <laughs> no, I mean our our foster homes are where the hearts at. They. They make miracles happen when we don't know what we're going to do. They take, like I said, our homes will take kids that that is not their profile. That's not what they expected. Um, but that gives them a bed for the night. That gives them, you know, gives a child a place to sleep. That's where that's the magic right there. Um, yeah. And I've also found that some of the biggest blessings that I've had and some of the most magical experiences with placements that I've had have happened because I said yes to a placement that I always said I would never take this age or, you know, they needed something in that moment. And I'm like, Hey, I've got a bad, we can make it work short term. And then, you know, it turns long term. And well, Jack, you're magic too. So well, I don't know about that. that. No, I think true. Jack daddy Jack is daddy. magic. I like that name. I like that a lot. <laughs> I'm, I came from Texas and I was in case management for two years, a long, long time ago. And at the tail end of my time there, there was like a, a big event and, that was out of state and tons of kids were removed. I don't have a number because I was, you know, I didn't get any of those kids, but some of my colleagues who are in case management got all these kids in their caseload. Have you ever had a day that you were like, oh my gosh, there are so many kids. Or have you had any days like that? Or, you know, they're like, oh, at least once a week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, when you say kids though, that come from out of state where we're located is the visiting area for every state. So we laugh all the time. We'll get kids in from, people that are vacationing here um and like our our golden rule is in the placement department so and so state needs to take their kids back you need to come get your kids is what we say because now they're here and parents are going back to their home state and you're leaving kids in the system 
here. So they're not going to be getting visitation. They're not going to be getting that normalcy of having their parents work a case plan in that in our state. Seems like ICPC like works against you in that situation. I mean, I always say that I hope the state's going to take back jurisdiction, but you know, sometimes they don't want to deal with the cost of taking that on. So sometimes they do stay here and we have it a lot. It just happens. Then you're, you're, like you said, the ICPC, which is the process of moving kids between the states that takes weeks upon months before that's approved. So if you've got kids that were left here because parents were vacationing when kids got removed, all of their relatives are out of state. So now they're gonna they're gonna oh be boy. on our side of the system for a long, long time. A very a long, long time. time. I mean, I've seen how long ICPCs take. Like that's. I that's feel like when ICPCs involved, basically you just kind of hold on for dear life, and you've forgotten about ICPC by the time it takes place. Yeah. Um, so I think that you're probably dealing most with teens because you they probably have the most moves and then moves again and then moves again. But if you look at the full picture of intake. What do you think the biggest age group, at least in our area, that's coming into care? I can't say that there is one because, like I said, we go in these ebb and flow. So right. sometimes like said, it's all little, sometimes it's all big. I mean, and sometimes it'll just be like via diagnosis. So when we say it, sometimes it's like every kid that enters, they have like an autism diagnosis. I'm like, what? You can't do every intake with an autism diagnosis. We can't do everything. But it'll be like. I mean, just even the most random things, like every kid that comes CPI's in. CPI is messing with you. I know, every time, like every. Pumpkin spice latte season, it's also autism season. Right. Or no, whatever. It will be. It'll be like every kid that comes in only has one leg. How does every child only have one leg? I'm telling you, sometimes it's as small as that. I kid you not. It's something so minute. So if we're kind of looking at this, like if there's somebody listening who is considering being a foster parent and their thought is, what is the need really? So what you're telling me is there is a pretty great need for foster parents. Always a great need for foster parents. So the only reason that we're finding beds every day for the kids that are coming into care is because people are taking more kids than they're um, planning to. Most of the time, yeah. So we're, we unfortunately have a lot of homes on waivers. So that's more than that five capacity. Yeah. Um, and then mostly with that, it hits over the license capacity because technically you're only allowed to have five kids in the home, regardless if they're fostering or biological. Five is the magic number. So anything over that. So if you come in with four or five kids, biological or adopted, then you can only have a license for one child. So sometimes we've had homes that do have five biological children coming into it. So yes, their capacity is for one, but that always puts them on a waiver because there's always going to be that sex child in the home. And I think what I've seen as a trend for foster parents is if you're doing it for a while, at some point, you're most likely going to end up having a a placement that turns adoptive. If you're adopting placements you have, your family is growing. So unless you want to stop fostering, and while many have to do that because they don't have the space to expand, most of us foster homes. When I started, do you think that I ever thought I would have eight kids? Heck to the no. The trainer in my class had a family like that. And I was like nudging my husband like, I am never going to be like that. I am never going to drive that big old bus. And I'm telling you like, but I love that kid. I love that kid. They're part of my family and I have space for them. And I've been their mom for this long. Like, how could I not be their mom forever? They don't have like, they're not able to go back to their mom. Like, that's what I'm going to do. When we first started fostering, we were like, we'll take one, maybe two. And our first placement was two. 
And but we never had attention of having more than three kids in our home. But then later that year, it was just like, we could do another. And that's when that one child came. And then it was just like, well, after you have three or four, like it's all the same. So if I have space in my house and I have time for them and space in my car, then why am I going to say no when placement calls and they need a place for this kid to go? And I I think that's what happens a lot. I don't think any foster families get in here thinking I'm going to have a family of 10, you know? I mean, nobody really wants to drive the Econo van. Like, let's be honest. I mean, wait, 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 wait. That's my favorite. (laughs) That is my favorite when I was doing waivers for these larger families. And I would say, as I look at the foster mom's date of birth going, so at 30, you thought you would be driving a 15 passenger van and they go, no, that wasn't my dream. I said, all right, but 15 passenger van, I will write this down in the waiver because that's one of the questions. Just how many seats are in your vehicle? So, I mean, it happens. I mean, you guys, I think you guys become a little, you've got a cult up here. If you guys got the big vans. I think Jack does love her van though. I, I do like my bus. We have some fun. I mean, but I we do. jam it out. We put, like, Christmas lights up. Yeah, we we rock the music. Car. Like, what's one more, though? Like, when I need emergency child care, this is who I call. Yeah, she's I'm like, like who cares? It's like, your kid's coming? That's just extra hands. Drop them on off, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry. She's like, no, it's easier. No, yeah, bring me your kids, please. It's definitely, I don't think most people go into fostering expecting to have that many kids. But I feel like it's just something that happens naturally if you have the space why not make more room well yeah when kids are i mean i hear from yeah i hear from the foster parents who do have these larger amount of kids in their homes that once those kids start going home especially when they're in sibling groups you know so they'll go home and sets of two three four i'm ready they're going home they're like my house is empty please give me kids because i'm bored yeah I'm bored. I would like to have more kids back in my home. My home feels empty I've, right now. I've definitely had that. I, I remember. I believe we've had that conversation. Yeah, I've had like, conversation. I only, there's no waiver. But I don't know what to do with myself right like, now. Me and my kids are all sitting here staring at each other like, what are we going to do? No, like, where'd all the kids that's go? That's a real thing because the, the sibling group that was in the home before, when they would go on weekend visits, we'd come over. Before, it felt like a bunch of people were running around with, there was like, um, what are they called? Like those like lawnmower toys with like the ball poppers. Yeah. And then that's what like the house felt like. And then when they were gone, and I mean this in the best way, because yeah. they just were like, oh, you know, ee, you know? And <laughs> well, and especially when you guys came over. Because, because I have they one love of those too. Like I have, I, I add the fourth. And then when we would come over, it was just like, like quiet. And I'd be like, there's something missing. Yeah, I think there was a Christmas where we had like zero foster kids. It was just my my adopted kids. And everybody was like, this is so boring. Like normally there's like so many kids. And especially like one of the really cool things about being a foster parent is getting to like experience things with kids that they haven't experienced before. And actually that one child with that ICPC, this child, you could give her like a pet rock and she would make this face like you just brought her to Disney World. I have these pictures of her where she's like, ah! and it's like, it's like simple toys, you know, that like, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. But like to her, it was the world. These kids that haven't experienced certain things that like maybe my kids have experienced, getting to experience that with them. It's just so exciting for me and for my kids and for my husband. Yeah. Like sometimes when, when there aren't as many kids in the house, it's like, well, what are we going to do? I don't know. Well, Where I can, did everybody go? I can totally see why you'd feel that way because I know that you got a call, I think, from placement that you told me about in the same day. 
and I've been thinking about those kids for weeks now, like, like two kids. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, if I were a foster mom, I, I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to say no. I like. It's hot. Like, it's I got to so tell hard. you, the kids that I've said no to, and there aren't that many because, you know, especially when, you know, yeah. these two call me like, whatever. Sure. I could do that. But the, the few that I have literally said no to haunt me. And I'm always like, a good what if they went somewhere bad I am and they were hurt? You yeah. know? Or what if they went to a group home? What if they were separated because I said no? Yeah. And the, the placements that I have said no to always haunt me. And, and the placements that I, especially there's this one that I took for the weekend because I was like, I'm never going to take kids older than my son. And then this boy came and, you know, we've talked about it even on the podcast before how he was anxious when he came. My kids made a circle around him Mm -hmm. and hugged him. And they were all like the ones that were foster kids were like, we're foster kids, too. You're okay. You're safe here. Nobody's going to hurt you. You don't have to be scared. And by the end of the weekend, he was crying, begging not to leave. But I just felt like I had made a promise to my son that he wouldn't have brothers that were or sisters that were older than him. I had to, you know, honor that request from him, uh, especially because he gives so much as yeah uh, as a brother um, and as a son. You're like, honesty is stability for kids. And right. Kids. Yeah. But, but that's that hard. kid leaving tore my heart up and I still like I wonder all the time like did he reunify is he in a group home somewhere I I'm I'm haunted by that too I was like what if I could have just said yeah so I don't know maybe that's not the best thing to tell people because um you know you don't want to be haunted but we really do need foster parents and um if you have this space like well, it's hard, though, because all we have, like, all we can do is operate within our role. And we desperately need to people to operate in this role. And Always. we all have our own roles. And we'll burn out if we yeah. if we move out of our role. But it's really hard. Like, I obviously cannot be a foster parent and then continue to do my job. But, like, on days, like, a few weeks ago, when you told me about those two kids, I wanted to, you know? Like, yeah. it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. What are some of the reasons that you wouldn't that would stop you from calling someone to take a placement like we know there's do not call list and sometimes that's because you know maybe there's an ongoing investigation or maybe um there's something going on in the home that the license and like hey they need to be on hold now but are there other reasons that that you don't call someone that you're planning to i don't think that we ever really would not call a home unless there's a reason not to place if there's a concern, like you said, by licensing or something like that. And not a concern is in the foster home, but maybe putting a child with these needs or behaviors where that could jeopardize the home later down the road. They did get to a point, you know, and I've been to a point when I was there where we're going to call every home. I don't care if this is in your profile, not in your profile. Yeah. If you've got a hundred kids, you don't have a hundred kids, we're calling you. Children need a bed at the end of the day, and hopefully it will work out. It'll be long term. Um, I mean, we're goal for saying, can you keep this kid for the weekend? And then it's like, but just a couple more days, just coming. And we're always hoping, <laughs> always hoping. Yeah, I've played that game before. That we can get you <laughs> just a couple, couple more. more days to where you go. You know what? Long term doesn't sound so bad. You know what? But that's worked with me a it, couple of times. I mean, hey, that's, I'm thankful for the experiences that I had with those kids. So. It's always my go-to. You know, just you <laughs> ask in that sweet voice on that Monday morning. But how did that weekend really go? It sounded like you had fun. Let's try a couple more days. Yeah. We don't ever really not try to place in a home. I mean, again, if you have an open bed and you're willing and it makes sense and it fits in your profile, you know, there's no picking and choosing. Um, we always want a child to find stability. And if your yeah. home's going to be that stable place for them, 
we're going to go with it. Well, I guess that's kind of like piggy, like that's kind of what I was going to ask. Like, do you ever have a home that you're like, ah, they seem to be going through a stressful time right now. We're like, oh, they're, you know, maybe they were just in the hospital or maybe their mom just died. Maybe we're going to give them a little break or. So normally we get those types of um, that type of information from licensing because licensing talks to their homes on a regular basis. Uh-huh. Like a home has recently reunified um, mm-hmm. and it may be something that's a struggle or the reunification wasn't what you thought was going to happen, which we've had yeah. happen recently where court ordered the same day. Kids going. Yeah. Foster parents didn't know that was going to happen. They're, we didn't rough. even pack bags. <laughs> so again, what we'll do is ask the licensing team, hey, what do you think we should do going from here? Because we don't want to put pressure because, um, again, a lot of our homes are so open that they will take a kid, even if maybe they're not quite ready, mm-hmm. um, just because they think that, you know, they're always ready to help. How do you determine how much information to give during a placement screening call? Or is that just depending on the placement coordinator? I'm an open book. Yeah. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to sit on the phone. My conversations take forever. I'm going to sit on the phone and you're going to, I'm saying, you got any, do you have any questions for me? Because I'll start looking the stuff up, being the counterpart, the one that you like so much. Uh, we, we enjoyed the, the research part of it um, and finding that stuff out. So what I have is what I'm going to give you down to what a kid likes to eat, what their favorite colors. If I've heard that I'm going to throw it on because some of that's the sweet spot that does help a person Decide to take a child. Yeah. Just kind of hearing that. Oh, their favorite food is grapes. Well, I love grapes too. Look, it'll go <laughs> yeah. ahead. Um, I think my my biggest flaw, and I'll say this, you know, up until I, I quit working there, I would always forget to tell a foster parent the child's name. I go oh through my, my gosh, home. I, I you're not the only one. I can't tell you like nine times out of ten, the kid gets there and I find out the name because I look at the book. It would nine times out of ten. You're not the only one. Yeah, when I went to supervisory, it was my personal line that they would call. You know, that trait to my yeah. phone. As where we have a placement line that goes to anyone that's answering the placement line. So once it became my personal line, they call me back. So yeah, did you want to give me the name? <laughs> Absolutely. While I'm at it, how about I get you the name? That's so funny. Is there a mechanism in place to make sure that a new placement is placed with any potential siblings? Always. That's that's the first thing we go looking for. And that's one of the things we, you know, go to search is if they do have siblings. So the two big things we look for are either to place with siblings or to place in a previous foster home. If that child's been there, we're calling, we're contacting. Even if you say, you know, maybe it's not for you, I'm gonna I'm gonna work it in there. We're gonna right. get that sibling placed. So like even if a sibling even if it's a sibling or a previous placement that may not have availability, you're still gonna try because it's um there's a connection there. Right. That's uh, continuity of care, and that's what we always go for. It's the biggest thing we strive for placement. All right. Do you ever see a person either who's a foster parent or someone who works for the agency and you just think you are not cut out for this? I would say when it comes to working, if you don't love what you're doing, then maybe Mm -hmm. it's not the job for you. Um, This takes a certain kind of person, a certain kind of passion. I wanted to do it 24 seven. So when I see people that I don't feel like want to be on 24 seven, it always bothers me, but I'm not here to make those decisions for them. Um, When it comes to fostering, I'm telling you, the community within our county, I've never had that issue. I mean, they really rally around the kids that they have. It's a joy to work with our foster parents. I, I really do. I, I, I've always enjoyed it. I really do enjoy the community. Everyone's in it for the most part for the right reasons. And we all want to see these kids succeed. So that's been really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's just for my department in general, I came from great leadership. Leadership that just always wanted us to do better, wanted us to, you know, make an impact, make a difference. My my boss worked 24-7, so that gave me a passion to do it, wanting to do it. And then that 
was me teaching that next generation of placement coordinators, like Mm -hmm. have a passion. If you don't have a passion, then don't do it. This job isn't for, like I said, isn't for everybody. It takes a special kind of crazy to want to do it. <laughs> special kind of crazy. We say that all the time. I in the feel office. like that's a theme that we've talked to pretty much yeah. everybody about is that we're all a little bit crazy. A little bit. Can you tell us about your worst day at the agency? I think any worst day would be when we have to settle on a kid sleeping in the office. Um, that's just you never want a kid to sleep in the office. And especially, you know, when it comes down to behaviors and just not having a bed due to those behaviors, we've had kids that have told us like, because of me, this is where I'm sleeping. You never want to hear that from a kid, you know, and it's just unfortunate circumstances. At one point in time, I was working like an overnight shift as a supervisor. And I had to be the one to kind of make that call with my director that this child was going to sleep in the office. And that right there, it just sticks with you. These are children. When and if we get to do it, which is our plan in in the future, I'll always have a bed, you know, sometimes it comes down to a couch, a something. I'll put an air mattress anywhere. Yeah. But I don't want to have a kid. I mean, what's what's the worst they can do? Um, I mean, you can get a kid so they have somewhere to sleep for the yeah, night. Yeah, and that's one of the things that a lot of us say all the time. You can do anything for a night. You know, you can go outside your profile for a night. Like, if we need to get this kid somewhere to go so they're not sleeping in an office and not feeling like that's their own fault, because none of these kids are in care for their own fault. Yeah. Um, then... You can do anything for a night. So can I, I mean, can I just ask what that looks like when a child has to sleep in the office? I mean, if you go to our office, you know, in, in my home county, um, it's, it's an office building with cubicles and fluorescent lights. And those are on all the time. We go through, we have a whole protocol. Every available bed that's open, we're calling, regardless if you're in profile or also outside of profile. Uh, on top of that, you know, when it becomes a team, it's every single group home. In county, out of county, as far down from top of the state to bottom of the state. We're calling everyone. We call every circuit to see if they have beds. You will go through a whole night. You're not calling that. And as a supervisor and as our coordinators work, you're working till 1, 2, 3 a.m. to find a bed because you have have to exhausted all efforts before. I mean, I've gotten calls at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, so I know how late you guys are working. So, And at that point, like the night's already halfway gone. It's yeah. like yeah. at this point, they're pretty much resolved as wherever they're at, they slept. So where are they sleeping? Like, are they sleeping on like a mattress or on a sleeping bag? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, again, this this is uh, kind of a new phenomenon for us where we're at. We, we used to pride ourselves, though. We had said we never had a kid sleep in the office. We always found a way. We always had a foster home that could open, open their doors just for the night. We finally, you know, at one point it came to it. They did sleep in the office. So... We do now have air mattresses and they'll blow up an air mattress. They'll get a blanket. Um, and there's an adult there with them. Always. They're always with the case management team. So they, they rotate off on and off on shifts um, to get them through the night. So they have an on-call 24-7, both case management, placement, our licensing team. Yeah. Someone's always working. Someone's always going to answer that phone. So Yeah. So like at 730 in the morning, though, lights are coming on. People are coming into work. Yep. And they are getting up and being transported to school. They're being transported um, to a day treatment program, safe schools out. So it's like a daycare program for our older kids, um, you know, transported to appointments, wherever. But yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell us what your best day with the agency would be? I can say I don't know that I would have known it was my best day the day it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was placing a teen in a home that didn't take teens um, just knowing they had an opening and that they had stretched a little bit before. Um, and I placed 
this child who we were just every group home they had been through and just, you know, due to being in care for so long, kind of had a name, just more as, as a, as a difficult child, wanting certain things for themselves. And and that's not a bad thing. Self-advocating is great. Yeah, it's important for them to be able to self-advocate. But really stuck to her guns about wanting to be in a foster home. And we had to keep telling her, we just, we don't have any for teens. Unfortunately, we just don't have anything right now. So finally it hit, came up in my head. I talked to the licensing team. I'm like, I think we can make this work. They're like, give them a call. I'll be in your corner if you, they need some for me because, you know, I've got that relationship with them. So we talked the child into it. The child at that time was about 15, 16. And that's where the child ended up aging out um, and having that connection past 18. So I still, that's to my day is my favorite is making those placements work that weren't going to. That's what I always strive for was yeah. I make these connections that you don't think are going to happen. Um, it was one in a millions. That's so cool that that's like your best day. That's really yeah. neat. And it also speaks a lot to you. Oh, let me throw in the second best day. Yeah. Which yeah. actually, now that I think about it, might be my best day. We had a child, also same thing, would run, do what he wanted. And what made it the best day was he at one point was in and out of sleeping in the office. Yeah. Refused to go to his placements. Would say, I'm not going to a group home. I'm going to refuse. We kind of got used to it. At one weekend, that kid made me up for like 48 hours straight. Kind of made a connection with him. We talked to him in the office when he was in there, trying to work something out. Maybe even get into a group on me. We just, let's work with me. Work with me. So while talking to him in the office, he had told me about his laundry. All of his laundry was dirty because he had basically been living out of suitcases in the office. So I asked him, I said, can I take your laundry home? I have a washer and dryer. It's yeah. not being used every day. There's yeah. only two of us in my house. So he said, yeah, can if I bring you some clothes, can you do it? And I said, Absolutely. He brought me his clothes. I brought them home. He thanked me at that point, which was great. And it was the next day when I brought the clothes back and he was just like elated that I'd wash it in one day. Like I went home that night from work and washed it. I mean, I'm not going to let it sit there. So I washed it, got the bag cleaned. You know, at that point I wasn't married. So I was at this point, it was still a boyfriend that I had been living with. And he's like, whose socks are you folding? Whose boy underwear is that? I'm like, listen, you knew this came with the territory. I was in child welfare prior to being with you. So this is what happens. And he's like, okay. So I'm like folding it all up. And I brought it back to him the next day and he literally hugged me. And this is 18 boy. I mean, we are at yeah. 17 or not. And he was like, thank you so much. And that was it. Like, I'll wash everybody's laundry. I, I have an open washer and dryer. Like, bring me the clothes home. And I've said that, you know, every day since. If you need me to wash laundry, let me do that. So, yeah, yeah that just a clean pair of clothes. I mean, that was probably a really big deal for him. Yeah. Just to have, I mean, again, he'd said everything was dirty. He would just give it a smell to make sure it wasn't too dirty before he wore it. So to be able to wash everything for him felt really great. I said, load me up. I got this. Uh, what realistic solutions do you think could be implemented that could resolve some of these placement struggles if you had like an infinite amount of money, resources? I have more access to recruiting, but... I don't know that the blank check would do that. Um, I mean, we recruit now, but being able to just recruit more. I mean, we always need foster parents um, and we need foster parents that are able to stay the long run. But again, it's with the overload of the system, we're putting extra kids in these homes and it does. It burns people out. It burns them out quickly. That's really the only thing that I feel like we can do at this point is we just have more homes, more homes available. So um, use uh, if we had additional funding, we would use it to get more 
foster homes. You know, let me tell you this crazy idea I had that um, one day I'm going to make it happen. Um, I need to find a politician that will listen to me, though. I feel like, you know how in the state of Florida, teachers have their college tuition reimbursed after teaching for a certain number of years? I feel like they should offer that to foster parents because... That is going to not only entice more people to be foster parents, but it's going to entice more foster parents who are professionals to become foster parents. People who, um, you know, if you, if you have a college degree, statistically, you're going to have a better job and um, it's going to give you more resources to take care of that child and also give more children examples of people who've been through college and, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, have succeeded in careers, potentially. Yeah. Um, I just, I always think that that would be a really cool uh, benefit to offer foster parents. Like, really hey, good idea. if you're a foster parent for, let's say, five years, we're going to forgive your um, college tuition in the state of Florida. Wouldn't that be idea. neat? I would like that. I mean, if that's, yeah, if that's what it takes to get more foster homes. I mean, I would even say like with infinite amount of money and not that they're not trained well, but more training. Yes. Because I think that the biggest thing that we kind of see um, on ours is not that there's not a lot of trauma training, but giving more trauma training and what those. Yeah. There's no amount of training that can prepare you for some of the behaviors you're going to see until you're experiencing it in person. So one of the things we talked about is like in the foster training classes, they have to interview foster parents. But what if they had to like actually like come to your house for a couple hours and hang out with your kids? Like, I mean, I don't know, you know what that looks like. And obviously with COVID going on, that definitely makes things more complicated. But I think it's important uh, being around other foster parents to normalize those behaviors because, you know, Mm -hmm. these behaviors are the ways that the children are communicating what they need and their hurts. I mean, I use this analogy. I'd heard it once and I I don't even know where I heard it, but what it feels like, you know, probably for a foster kid, a child that's never felt love is the same feeling as when you're cold and you get in a hot shower. Yeah, you know, that hot shower feels good. But the first thing that water does is it burns you. You don't want to be in. You want to react. You want to get out. And that's mm-hmm. what kids and I I say that to foster parents all the time. Like, that's what that looks like. And that's what trauma looks like. They mm-hmm. they don't know what it, the first time it's like to get a hug just to get a hug. They don't know what it feels like to be congratulated for doing a good job. They've never had that. So they're going to react differently in every situation. And sometimes just being open to that. It's scary for someone who hasn't experienced that before. They're like, oh my gosh, this is scary. What's this kid going to do next? But in reality, if they're just breaking things in the house, like that can be replaced. And sometimes, you know, we as adults don't know what to do with our emotions. It's easy to say this not in the moment when the child is not like, you know, having their reaction and you're like, ah, but you know, when you look back, you're like, gosh, you know, they, they punched a hole in the wall. You know, if I knew everything that happened to them, I want to punch a hole in the wall too. Like let's punch a hole in the wall together. You know, that might not be a great financial plan, but, but you know, in reality, like if they're not hurting other people, these can be small things that can be dealt with. They can. And honestly, we do really similar things to like I mean I can recognize it myself when I have no control in my own environment and I'm seeking out control in the same way that like a small child is like I will eat only french fries watch me right. I'll make your life miserable <laughs> you I mean, french fries are really good though and if I could only eat french fries I would only eat french fries they are they are <laughs> and I can recognize the same behavior right. in myself as an adult right. and you know I would say that um, a child who made your life miserable for 48 hours probably did not like the warm water they're probably really enjoyed the I mean, I still don't 
still I still talk to that child and that child has yeah. aged out since then and Aww. so that child knows he can call me if he needs anything and that's Aww. that's important to me was to know that that yeah. connection was made I don't need it to be a forever everyday thing but still reached out when he did need something yeah um, yeah so. I mean Typical kids do these things too, which I yeah. think I've, yeah, kids I've, without trauma. Like you just, yeah, and it's that's what they say, especially when it comes down to teens. They're like, oh, these behaviors, but that child's probably been in trauma a lot longer than we ever caught up to, mm-hmm. and so they were just managing it, and now we're seeing the effects of prolonged trauma yeah. and what right. that looks like, and that's going to come out. Um, once they're comfortable once they get used to the shower yeah <laughs> yeah and they feel like they can like reach down for the shampoo bottle or whatever oh, no. they're like oh okay. here we go yeah here we yeah. go you ready for it <laughs> yeah to, to kind of get an overview of the spider web of how everybody works together um, the, the partners that placement works with are CPI because they send you intakes right correct when we take an intake we have from the time the intake is completed um, until four hours later to place a child Oh, really? Um, that I didn't is, know there was a time frame. That is, uh, not everywhere. That is just what we've contracted in our county with um, our CPI agency. So we have four hours to place a child. Um, so that's when those calls start getting desperate between hour three and four. <laughs> so if you've received several messages from us, we're trying to get that placement in. At that point, the CPI team will transport to our on-call um, agency, depending on the county. Um, one county has two agencies, one has one. So regard, you know, if it's from county A, they'll go to that. If it's county B, we have one of our own calls. So then they'll sit until we have um, placement. And then also contacted between us is that there's a three-day rule um, and CPI transports for the first three days. So, so you interact with CPI. Yes. Case management when it's an open case. Correct. Licensing to, to determine whether a placement is going to be approved. Correct. Right? Uh, am I missing anybody? Is there anybody else you interact with? Um, so we have uh, connected with us our therapeutic team. So okay. if a child has therapeutic needs, we'll contact our therapeutic team um, and they'll start working on those needs for their homes. We also contact our medical team if there are medical needs. So if kids come in, you know, that have medical needs that are long lasting, they'll go under our medical side. We have contact with group homes or sometimes we don't even well we can bypass licensing if a child or if a home's not on a waiver, we'll directly contact right. our foster parents. We also have contracted agencies for licensing. So sometimes we can t- contact our contracted people and they contact their homes. Is there something that determines whether you go to someone who's licensed directly or a, like a contracted agency? Whoever has the opening for that child We'll start on that list and then we'll kind of backtrack between the two. Okay. So what do you think are some basic things that foster parents can do to work better with placement? So I think the biggest thing is if a foster home thinks they're going to disappoint us, um, just let us know that the answer is no and it doesn't fit for your home because we'll, we'll move on. We don't want you to be thinking that we need you to say yes to every placement because there are homes that at that time it might fit in their home and we haven't thought of them. Puts us into thinking outside the box. That's the best thing that we can do. So... Other than that, our, like I said, our foster So don't worry about disappointing yeah. placement. Just let them know as soon as uh, you, you've made a decision so that they can move forward with finding placement and securing it for the So time. you don't have like a blacklist of people that you're mad at right now? They said no. <laughs> I would never say that. Ever. It's a secret. <laughs> Will you tell me later? I can tell you. Okay. <laughs> no, I do. I love most of our foster parents. They're really great. And I know who my go-tos are. Like we say, um, I can if, I'm, you too. If, if I'm, if I'm in a pinch, I know who had a call and still I'll reach out. Like I said, I reach out to those homes that I've talked to forever and I still have those great relationships with them. So, okay. Can you give me a word that you think people would use to describe someone in placement? I would like to think they hope that they were dedicated that yeah. they know that we're 
always trying the best. I think sometimes you might not understand the reasoning and I've had to kind of explain the reasoning on the backhand, why we do what we do. Uh Um, We always want, we want siblings together. We want kids together, but sometimes it's just not the possibility. So we're trying to find the best placement for a kid. And if that's splitting them up, it's trying to keep them in the same county or putting them with foster parents that are friends so that we know that they're going to see each other. They're going to have that visitation. Um, I don't know that it's always comes off that way um, from us, but Mm -hmm. we promise that's what we're doing. (laughs) But I hope that our foster parents know, you know, that we do care about these kids. These kids Mm -hmm. are our kids. Um, Hope that people can see that. And I think I've said that before is that Mm -hmm. when I talk to placement, I can tell that they really care about these kids. Um, do you see yourself that way? Oh, yeah. This is 100% a passion slash obsession for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm very dedicated to finding those kids a bed. I like making relationships not only with my foster parents, but the group homes and our group home directors. And, you know, sticking to my word is a big thing. Uh, so I always try. I never make a promise to a kid that I'm not willing to make sure it will come true. Mm-hmm. Or I say, I, I tell the kids I'm never going to make a promise in general because I can't always yeah. promise everything. So, but yeah, the team that I work with was the same way. Every day we wake up and we're looking for those placements and not just to be temporary. We're looking for long-term. Mm-hmm. What would surprise most people to learn about how placement works? Um, that we're always working ahead. You know, we hear a lot, why have you waited till the last minute? Um, and that's not always the truth. Uh, Again, when we get notice that a kid has to move or that a kid's Just for respite. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> sometimes you're working in the negative of just trying to find kids long-term homes, not find them temporary Absolutely. homes. We're always working towards what a long-term goal is. So mm-hmm. um, our brains are moving at a million miles a minute. Um, and again, it's a lot of conversation. So we go back and forth and it's it's great. But just to have that conversation yeah. because it does help. Um, and some people are better talking to some foster parents than others. So you're yeah. like, hey, you make that call because you know the sweet spot for that foster parent. Um, and you can get those placements. Uh, but yeah. Hey, Elise, you call Kim. Yeah. She'll say yes to you. Yeah. We're always, we're always moving. It's always a moving piece. We're always trying something. So what do you want foster parents to know about placement? We're doing our best. I mean, it doesn't always seem seem like that, but I mean, again, this is our team's twenty four seven, so there's always someone working. Um, we care about them as just as much as we care about our kids. Be patient with us, because sometimes we're a little tired too. We're a little grumpy. Um, I mean, at three o'clock in the morning when you're trying to find a placement, I would ooh, imagine. Especially when uh, you're working that overnight and you have to be up again at eight a.m. <laughs> and being and I and I understand and that's those calls when people would answer. I was working overnight and I'd be like, I am so sorry. But um, can you take a kid? I always uh, think it's funny when foster parents get mad. Like, they call me at, like, midnight. It's like, you mean when you were laying in your bed, comfortable and cozy, and they were sitting in a desk, like, trying to find a place for a kid to sleep that night? Like, I'm so sorry. You had to, like, hey, turn your phone off if it's that big of a deal. But what do you want the public to know about placement? I don't know that the public understands what placement is. Again, because it's different in every county, mm-hmm. every state different situations, um, kind of how it works. Sometimes I've heard that case management does all the placement themselves. So I don't know that the public who doesn't work directly with our system is going to even know what the placement is um, or what our department does. We're, we don't want a child to sleep in the office. Mm-hmm. So I know that we get um, a bad rap about that sometimes. And people do think that that's kind of <laughs> that we don't care if someone sleeps in the office. I promise we do. Um, we all go to bed with a heavy heart. Um, a night we have to, you know, tell a kid, here's your air mattress. Here's a blanket. We'll see you at eight o'clock. Um, so 
just know that there's a lot of people caring about these kids. Um, Speaking of how much you care about the kids, the secondary trauma that you guys receive in placement from, you know, being around this trauma all the time, you know, causes trauma fatigue. What do you personally do for self-care so that you don't get burnt out? Being in the community. Um, I like going out and doing stuff. I travel. That's a big thing. Um, so if I have a free weekend off, I am somewhere not in my home state. But yeah, we, I live in a really cool area and there's always something to do here. Um, Other than lack of beds, what are the biggest struggles you face? I'd always say it's the amount of kids, which is unfortunate. But that then turns into lack of beds, lack of beds and yeah. lack of resources. Um, yeah. Like I said, the, the trauma-informed um, parenting, I, I feel like I wish there were more courses on that, more things to offer, and just support. I don't know that our foster parents always, I know that they get mentors. I know that they have a big community. They speak to each other, but I don't always think that there's enough support. I meet foster parents sometimes that don't have a community of foster parents. And I'm like, how are you still doing this? Because if I didn't have my people, like there's no way I would still be doing this. I think it's been big in our, like I said, our circuit, they've started the mentor program, the mentorship program. And I know that's really helped. We're getting our veteran foster parents who have done this for years and years and years, have had many kids, you know, seen it all. So they're getting those new foster parents and that's elongating the, you know, how long these foster parents are staying on board. Um, Cause again, that's the biggest thing is the burnout, the turnaround within one year. And yeah. I know that our team has really worked hard for that um, to be eliminated. You're kind of on the front lines there. You know, you're w one of the first um, parts of the puzzle when um, a kid is removed. Um, you know, you have interactions with the kids, you have interactions with CPI, like you guys know what these kids are coming in for, what's going on with them. Um, I feel like you've kind of got like a little insight onto, you know, what's going on in our community in that sense. What can our community do to prevent more kids coming into care? Being a mentor option, um, being a support to families prior to these kids coming into care. I know there's a lot of options out there for mentoring. I say it all the time when we're struggling with kids. Have you reached out to a mentor service? But I feel like if there was more mentoring programs, you know, the Big Brothers, Big Sisters program, something like that. Um, when you ask about kids that are in that age range and you're asking case manager, they're always saying these applications are backed up. There's not enough of them. So just having a support in the community that would help these parents who are feeling overwhelmed in their situation may stop that. Because, again, a lot of these some, sometimes it's for reasons of just, you know, mom's overworked, mom's overtired and she's doing, you know, sleeping. And they'll say, well, mom's not being protective in that capacity because she's sleeping while her kids are awake. But if mom had a support, maybe we could keep more kids from coming into care. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the issues you're not going to be able to fix. Right. Obviously. Um, that, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that. So a lot of kids that come into care, there have been um, multiple CPI reports before they actually do come into care. So maybe on the earlier reports, even if there's something unfounded, that um, there's more of an effort to provide them with resources mm -hmm. that would be of a mentorship type of service. Yeah. What are your goals to make positive change in our community? My goals personally, I mean, I would like to foster. That's my future. Uh, uh, I, yep. I, that was going to join my little crew. I mean, you're going to have to take your crew out to where I live, which is slightly I mean, kind of far away, but definitely drive far. to your side. Oh, I'm down with that. I like I mean, that. I'm halfway there. I mean, come on. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you so much for coming all the way over here. I really appreciate it. 
And you've always been one of my favorite people, but now I like you even more because I had so much fun with you. I'm going to write that part down in my diary. I really enjoy that, but thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.